probably not believe it when they told us. So beautifully. Thank you so much. Let's pray together. Great and awesome God, we thank you. We thank you for inviting us into this day and for the thousands of years of relationship with your creation, us, that we have not only to experience ourselves, but to look back on the experiences of all those who have come before us. And we pray, God, that we can be open to the message that you bring us today through their lives and their words in the Holy Scripture. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Recently, I read a story about a man who was going to be taking a, a little bit of early retirement. He was going to retire at 60. And um, he had a bucket list, of course. He had a list of all the things that he wanted to do when he retired. And, uh, you know, climb that mountain and swim that ocean and just all those things that we, you know, we imagine ourselves being able to do when you have the time. And uh, so he counted down the weeks, 20 weeks, 19 weeks, 18 weeks, 15 weeks, to the time that he would finally be free to do that. But it was a story that is like a lot of stories that you've heard before. The week before he was supposed to retire, he was in an accident, and he, he had a head-on collision with a truck. But he didn't die, but he was paralyzed from the neck down. And so everything that he had put on hold, everything that he had set aside for when he was, had more time and more energy, every, all of that was gone. He was unable to do any of those things that he had dreamed of doing. All of those things that he had put on hold until retirement, and he died in that bed. But he lived for 10 more years. But he died in that bed, and he had waited too long. It's a very familiar story that we hear when we hear, hear cautionary tales about, um, you know, waiting until you retire, but... It's different. When, when I was thinking about this story as I was reading it, and I was thinking of it in light of what Jeremiah is saying to us today, it, it seemed like it had a new life to it. Those sometimes, when I can relate a little bit easier to the when, because this, his story was a drastic story, but I think we can all relate to those times when we use when as a time marker. When I have children, I'll stop smoking and wear a seatbelt. I've heard that before. When I earn more money, I'll lose weight, or when I lose weight, I'll earn more money. When I have the surgery, I'll be happy. When I get this job or finish this project, I'll spend more time with my kids. And I wonder if we understand the power and the powerlessness of the word when. When is a magical, non-existent time. There is no such thing as when. And yet we fill when with all of these dreams that we have. It's, it's a lot like that old saying about manana. You know, mañana, tomorrow, never comes because when you get to it, it's today. 
So it's never, it never comes to you. After the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 597, and then the destruction of the temple later in 586, there was a large portion of the population, of the Hebrew population, that were exiled from their God-promised land and scattered. And Jeremiah, who is back in Jerusalem, is sending a letter out to all of these scattered exiles. And it's a letter that speaks to them about their future. They're devastated. But there were also false prophets like uh, Hananiah who were sending out messages at the same time. Why a false prophet? Well, Jeremiah was sending out a message of a reality. He was saying, this is the reality and this is what you're going to have to deal with. And so his message was based in a realistic understanding. And he says, you're going to be where you are for a very long time. So get comfortable and get on with living. But false prophets like Hananiah were saying, you're not going to be there any more, more than two years. So there's really no need to get comfortable. There's no need to... Uh, navigate your way around. There's no need to get to know your neighbor. There's no need to, you know, really plan to have any children or, or get married. Just hold off on all of that while you're there until you come back. And another thing that they were experiencing, they were experiencing a, a separation from God because God was in the promised land. God was at Mount Zion. God was in the temple. And so what Hananiah was doing was he was confining them to a wheelchair, a wheelchair that was uh, grief mixed in with hope, and there was really no need for them to, to work on rehab or uh, shrinking their muscles because they were going to be walking soon. And so they sat paralyzed for all that time by sorrow and hopelessness and helplessness. And this was the lament that they raised in that faraway land. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked for songs from us and our tormentors asked for mirth saying, Sing us one of your songs of Zion. And then this line, How could we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. And today's text are the words of that letter from the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. He sent this from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and to all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And these are his words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. It doesn't sound like they're going to be there for two years. Multiply there, and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find 
your welfare. The word of the Lord. Well, it's actually Israel's darkest night, and there doesn't seem to be any light in sight. It sounds like this encouraging letter that they get from uh, Jeremiah isn't so encouraging. They lose it when they understand that what he's saying is it's not going to be a short time that you're there. You're going to be there for several generations. And so it feels depressing and dark to them. They're no longer in the Holy Land that that they were promised and and that their ancestors had worked so hard to get to, but they were in a pagan land. They were no longer had access to Mount Zion and their holy temple of, of their God. Instead, they were surrounded by all of these Babylonian deities, and they were a dime a dozen on every corner. Tons of them. Take your pick. So what were they supposed to do in the midst of all this? Why wouldn't God just pluck them out and, and bring them home? How are they supposed to survive in this place? And God was back someplace else. What are they supposed to do? And then Jeremiah says, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be, do everything that you would do if you were home. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to eat and drink and marry and give, give your kids away in marriage and, and have babies and populate the land and find joy and plant gardens and eat the food. And you're supposed to work for the welfare of the people that you live in because by working for their welfare, you work for your own. And no matter how counterintuitive this seems, there was the word, and that's what God would have them do. That may seem like a very far away experience, but I wonder if there aren't many of us here today that may be experiencing a similar paralysis to these exiles. And perhaps you're facing unchangeable circumstances, circumstances that absolutely cannot be changed a chronic disease, an unexpected setback in your career or a relationship, an uncertain future, or an inconsolable grief. All of those things paralyze us without hope. So what is the message that Jeremiah brings to you today? And the prophet is very clear about the uh, captives and here's such a significant point, that even though they despise their circumstances, their future depends on their acceptance of it. Their future depends on their acceptance of the reality of which they are living. You know, uh, years ago, there was a study done by sociologists following World War II they were very interested in Holocaust survivors. And they began to wonder, was there something about the people who survived, something about the way they maneuvered through that horrible season that set them apart, that in, in enabled them to survive, that they could pinpoint, that differentiated them from the people who, who did not survive, aside from, aside from the obvious of starvation and torture, but was there something that set them apart? And after years of study and years of hearing stories from all of these survivors 
and the families of those who didn't survive, they came to a conclusion rather startling. They found that there was a direct correlation between the amount of time it took for a person to accept the reality of what was happening and their chances of survival. They said that the longer a person refused to accept that, the longer a person refused to accept that their neighbors could possibly be spying on them and turning them in, that they couldn't trust their neighbors, the longer it took for them to understand that the world was not going to step in and stop the killing machine, the longer it took them to understand that God was not going to make this stop the more likely it became that they would march unwittingly into gas chambers or into, onto cattle cars without fight or flight, still denying until their last breath that this could possibly happen. Others whose hearts were equally broken, but who did not deny this reality, who said, yes, our neighbors could turn against us because human beings do bad things, or they could see it with their own eyes. These people said, nobody's going to come to our rescue. We are not sure where God is. They were the people that smuggled their children out instantly, that got on planes and ships, even when the news began to surface that these things were happening. They were the ones that went into hiding, that joined the resistance, that were protectors of other Jews. And they were the ones who did anything and everything, ethical or not, to survive. But the one thing that differentiated them was their ability to accept reality so that they could act upon reality instead of waiting for when. And then, According to Jeremiah, there was something else besides accepting reality that you needed to do. You needed to accept reality, and then you needed to pray. All the other things they could do, I mean, they could do it through gritted teeth for sure, but how could they pray to the God whose dwelling place is at Mount Zion and whom the land of Israel was the place where God gave them and where God lived. So you see, when we come to this letter from Jeremiah, on the surface, it looks like a very uh, tame and a little bit disappointing letter. So nothing drastic is going to happen. That's what it looks like. Oh, my goodness, but it's not a run-of-the-mill and discouraging letter. It's anything but, because what Jeremiah is calling for is a huge paradigm shift for the people. Huge. And, and it's hard to describe what a paradigm shift is. It's very different than changing your mind about something. It means you have to, you have to take down a framework of reference point that you have and build a new one. And, and some of the paradigm shifts that we've experienced in the world is like one is the earth is round and not flat. Although I was on the internet the other day, and there are actually some people who still believe the world is flat, and I wonder how far they've traveled. But, uh, but you know, when we discovered that the earth was round and not flat, it, had to, it changed everything about the way we saw ourselves, the way we saw the world, the way we saw space. 
We also had to understand that the, the earth orbits around the sun and not the other way around, which it was believed for years because we believed that we were the center of the universe. Imagine what it means. It's like a two-year-old having to think like a 15-year-old. We're not the center of the universe? What? And another paradigm shift would be that women and children are not property, that they're individuals, and that people are not property in our own history. We had to do a paradigm shift that says it's not right to own people. You're, you're not supposed to own people. So his call to live your life and, and to go along and to understand that God is with them is a huge shift in their understanding Israel's God as a localized territorial deity. They had to understand that this God was the God of the universe, not a God of one place, that this God ruled over all people, not just the people that believed in God or the people that brought their offering to God. No, God was a God of all people. And the prophet is calling for this at the most inopportune time. Why couldn't he ask them to think this when things were going really good? When the land of Israel has been overrun by foreign powers who serve other gods, now it's going to be really hard. It's precisely here and now that they are told to pray. Because even here in Babylon, and even now as captives, God is with you. You can pray to God who rules over all people and for all places at all times. And Jeremiah says, you must be faithful to this God because God is with you. God is not back at Mount Zion. God is not waiting for you in, when you get back to Israel to be your God. God is with you just as much in Babylon as in Jerusalem, in Baghdad as in Boston. God is with us wherever we are, and even if that's not a location, even if that's a place in which our lives are situated, God is with us. Now, this is really unexpected news, unexpected news for them, and it will require a huge amount of faith as their worldview totally shifts to this broader understanding of who God is. And the recognition that we serve a God of the universe who is not limited to one nation and people calls us beyond God bless America to God bless the world. God bless all people for God so loved the world. And Jeremiah called the people to seek the welfare of the city, Babylon, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. That's the hard thing. These pe the, this, this enterprise that had come and desecrated everything that they held valuable, had killed women and children, had, had robbed them of all the brightest and the best of their whole future, had stolen them and kidnapped them and sent them to other places. They were supposed to pray for them. It's actually at the heart of the gospel that we proclaim the good news of great joy for all people. There are no exceptions here. And this is a huge shift in, in their understanding. And there's more. 
Pray to the Lord for the city of your enemies, for their success. That is, pray for the welfare of the Babylonians. And this is nothing if not counterintuitive. This isn't, it's, it's really not the reasonable or realistic reaction that people would have to what they're experiencing. That would be like asking those in a concentration camp to pray for Germany, to pray for their captors, to pray for the welfare of all those who were torturing them. How strange that is. The, a more realistic picture of how they might feel comes to us from the closing lines of that psalm that I read you about how can we sing a new song in the land. The closing lines are this. O oh, daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. That's how they felt. And Jeremiah says, no, pray for them. And Jeremiah's admonition to pray for their captors has a very familiar ring, doesn't it? To pray for your enemies. You have heard that it was said, speaks our Lord Jesus, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Centuries before Jesus spoke these words, these revolutionary words, Jeremiah had been given a message from God, a huge paradigm shift that Jesus would flesh out and that Jesus would compel his all people to embrace. Jeremiah's letter of unexpected news reminds us that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a God of unexpected news. I don't know about you, but God is always surprising me. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's startling. And sometimes it messes up my plans. Sometimes I'm looking for God to walk in the front door, and meanwhile, God has already come in the back door and settled in for dinner. Jeremiah's letter of unexpected news. I think it would be impossible for, for us in a short space to tell of all the unexpected news that keeps reminding us that God is this surprising, unexpected God that fills the whole biblical narrative. Just look at a few. Look at Noah. Build an ark. Abraham, go to a far land. Sarah, you're going to have a baby when you're 90. Jacob, Hannah, Isaiah, Mary, Joseph, Nicodemus, Peter, all the disciples, Zacchaeus, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, Pilate, Thomas, and Saul of Tarsus. All of them recipients of unexpected news. The most unexpected news I ever received from God was that I was loved. Unexpected. Why? What did I do to deserve it? How can I do more of what I did? And the most unexpected news was it's not about you, it's about God. So we have learned to call it good news. 
And so I think that today we have a reality that we must accept. And we must accept this in order to live our lives, to plant our gardens, to harvest and, and eat from the produce of it, to, for our children to be raised and for their children. This is the reality that we as followers of Christ must accept. We must accept that the only opinion that really counts is God's opinion. We must accept that life can and will be hard, but God is steadfast and faithful. We must accept that the only measure of the success of your life is the one that God gives you to measure success. That God has freely given you the way to live with purpose and peace. We have to accept that reality. We have to accept that loving people is loving God, and we have to accept that neglecting people and hating God is ne- and hating people is neglecting God and hating God. And we have to accept that we are a child of God, loved and forgiven, and that God has entrusted each of us to share our life with the same generosity, the same generosity that God was willing to share. And that there is no distance too far to go for the neighbor that God has given us. No distance too far. We have to accept the reality that Jesus shows us the way home. So we are called to follow in his footsteps. That's the reality of life too. There is no place that can contain or keep out the Holy Spirit just as much as God was not contained in the promised land and in the temple. The Holy Spirit cannot be contained in this place. The Holy Spirit cannot be contained in our heads, the way we think of it, in our lives. The Holy Spirit will go where the Holy Spirit chooses to go. And because of that, we reach out and we take hold of this invitation to bloom where we are planted. No matter where you are in your life today, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you have been through, to be able to grab hold of life and live it to the most full that you can possibly live without paralysis, but free. Never win, but now. Because God is the divine gardener. And this divine gardener loves and wills for the garden to be robust and healthy, flourishing and nourished. Amen.